0: Focusing in, uh, just over this coming weekend, on uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Very, very familiar parable to us. And yet, one that it's well worth um, going back to and looking at. Uh, just because of the, the profound nature of what we see there. But for now, we're going to read. Um, right from verse 1, we've got these three parables All largely giving us the same message about how God seeks out those who are lost. Whom he has chosen to bring into his family. So Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says... Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Like I say, we are going to be looking at uh, this parable of the prodigal son. Um, over our communion season, I think one thing that is obvious as we read this parable is that this is a really messed up family. Um, on the one hand, we have the younger son, the one commonly known as the prodigal son. I think it's fair to say he seems to ruin everything he touches. He sinks down as low as it's possible to go. And on the other hand, you don't just have the prodigal son, but you have the older brother, and. He is negative, he is bitter, and he is judgmental. It's a a really messed up family situation. And yet, in the midst of it all, we have this father. A man who's gracious and compassionate right from the start of the story until the end of the story. A man who faces incredible hurt in the way that these brothers speak to him. And yet he responds constantly with warmth and compassion. And I think this is a, a suitable passage for us for communion because those two boys remind us of what we're like, don't they? For some people they're a reminder of ourselves because of the dramatic sins of the younger brother, for others they're a reminder of what we're like because of the ingrained sins of the older brother. It's a passage that reminds us of how we mess up and that's a good thing to come to understand before we come to the Lord's Supper. But as well as that it's a passage that reminds us we have a father who at great cost to himself does anything it takes to restore his children. Uh, this is a story that is absolutely seeped in God's grace and we're going to see Particularly on Sabbath morning the full cost of that grace but tonight we're going to look at the bad news in the passage because this is a passage that tells us something about sin so we want to spend a little while tonight thinking about what we see about sin in this passage. I suppose in one sense we're going to be doing things back to front tonight. We're going to be starting at the end And we're going to be finishing at the start. Uh, The first thing that we see is the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. I think it would be a good idea to try and put ourselves into the prodigal son's shoes. Um, it's, It's a made up story. Jesus is using this to illustrate a point. But it's good to try and put ourselves into the story. Just imagine the excitement. In verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Here's this Jewish boy. Um, you could maybe try and imagine what sort of a home he comes from. It's probably a very conservative upbringing. And here, for the first time ever, He gets to throw off the shackles. He gets to have an adventure. And he decides in this verse that he's going to go off to a distant country. It's exciting. I think it's fair to assume whenever Jesus makes up this story, he is choosing his words very wisely. And at this point, he's near the Sea of Galilee in Israel. He's on the western shore of that. All you would have to do from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee is get into a boat, be less than a day's journey, and you could cross the sea. And when you get off at the eastern side, it's like stepping into a totally new world because there are all these Gentile cities across the water. So it's in terms of distance and in terms of miles, they're very close. In terms of everything else, they're very far away. These are cities that are totally immersed in Greek culture. They are they're, they're sensuous, they're sophisticated, they're exciting. And I remember listening to, to a sermon on this passage a number of years ago. And the preacher was speculating, I wonder, did anybody who was listening to this the first time shiver whenever Jesus talked about going to a distant country? wonder did people think about their own sons who had gone across the water and had gone to start a new life. And that they immediately think this is not going to end well? Here's this young man. start of verse 13, he has pockets full of cash. At the end of verse 13, he doesn't have a thing. It's miserable, isn't it? We could use our imagination. Can can you imagine looking under the bed or wherever he kept his stash of coins and realising they're gone? Can you imagine the sense of betrayal as all of these new found friends who seem to like you so much suddenly decide they actually don't like you all that much after all? It's pathetic, it's miserable. Look at how things spiral out of control. We have verse 13 and at the start of the verse he has the world at his feet. And in verse 16 he's in the pigsty. Here's this Jewish boy and he's cooped up with the most despised, dirty creatures you could possibly imagine. He is filthy. He is starving. In fact, he has fallen so far in verse 16... He's actually jealous of swine. That's how bad things have got. It's hard to imagine a more more dismal picture that Jesus could have painted. Sin has promised this man so much. It has promised him a good, enjoyable life, and all it's done is chewed him up and spat him out. It's miserable. And there are plenty of people in the church and I'm sure we know people and they can confirm this from their own experience. They've bought into the false promises and they've chased the bright lights and they're more than happy to admit that once the fun is over, there's this emptiness that lingers and there's a pain. That's what sin does maybe for some of us, we can't quite emphasize or empathize, sorry, with this particular story. We haven't quite gone off the edge as spectacularly as this and yet I think this is still a picture of us. This is us if God takes his hand off the handbrake. We're sinners by nature this is God if he stops restraining us. This is us plunging off the edge. And so I think we should be reading this story and we should be thankful that God's grace has, restra- has restrained us as much as it has. We should be delighted if we can't empathise with this. That God has not left us to our own devices. And he hasn't left us to face the consequences. Because sin is absolutely dismal, And we don't just see the effects of sin in the prodigal son, do we? We see it in the older brother as well. Notice how angry he is in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Here's this man who is incredibly bitter. He is consumed with resentment and with jealousy. Here is a man who has every reason imaginable to be thankful. He has this loving father, he has this comfortable life, and yet there's something inside him, isn't there? There's sin. And this sin means that he has lost all of his perspective. And rather than enjoying these blessings that he's got, he's seething, isn't he? He's raging because there's one thing that he doesn't have. Wonder can that be us sometimes? We drive ourselves crazy because we don't get what we think we deserve. (coughs) Or we get angry, or maybe not angry, but irritable perhaps when we see other people succeeding and we think it should be us. Or we get irrationally upset by things other people say, and we take them as being slights and insults against us. Sin can be incredibly destructive. Sometimes it's obvious, like the prodigal son. sometimes it's under the surface, things like bitterness and angry and anger, sorry, and jealousy. And arrogance and resentment. We're going to be taking part in the Lord's Supper this coming Sabbath. I think we're going to, to get the most out of it. If we're willing to examine ourselves for signs of sin. Not simply the obvious signs like this younger brother. But the more subtle signs like this older brother. So that's the consequences of sin. But the second thing we see is the character of sin. The character of sin. Like I say, it's a, a very well known story. And yet, sometimes, whenever a story is as well known as this, we can forget just how, how heartbreaking it is and just how much of a punch there is. Just think about it for a moment. Here's this. Loving father. He provides everything his sons could possibly need. He is attentive. He's a good father. How does this younger boy repay him? Well, he throws it all in his face. We see it in verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided His property between them. Here's this son. He's asking for something that is rightfully his. He's perfectly entitled to it. But it's not his until his father dies. It's his inheritance. What's he saying here? He's basically saying, I don't care about your love. I don't, I'm not interested in hanging around until you're gone. I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now. Or if we were to put it into a nutshell. Father, I wish you were dead. What an incredibly painful slap to the face. And then, to make it all worse... As we've already seen, he leaves home and he leaves his morals behind. We have a fair idea, I think, of exactly what he did with this money that his father gave him in verse 30. don't think we really need to elaborate. Needless to say, he went completely and totally off the rails. And yet the tragedy in this passage isn't what happens in the pig pen, is it? It isn't what happens in the distant country. The tragedy is what this son leaves behind. He has this father who is loving and devoted. And he swaps it for something that is leaving him used and empty. Doesn't that strike at the very heart of what sin is? Sometimes we think of sin as being just what happens whenever you don't keep a list of rules. It's far more tragic, isn't it? We tend to think to ourselves, this man, this prodigal son, he's sinful because of his reckless lifestyle. It's worse than that, isn't it? This is a man who has all sorts of blessings. And he wants absolutely nothing to do with the man who gives him these blessings. Isn't it awful? It's a slap in the face. It's terrible. And yet, isn't that sometimes what we do as well? Think of all the blessings that God pours out in us. He creates us. He sustains us. He gives us gifts and abilities. He gives us friendships. He gives us family. Think even of the material blessings that we have in our kitchen cupboards. And yet, don't we sometimes grab hold so tightly of the blessings that God gives us and we ignore the one who blesses? We take the goodies and we forget about the one who gives. That couldn't be more obvious in the prodigal son. I think it's also the case in the older brother as well, isn't it? He's a a very, very sad case. Um, notice verse 29 he says to the father look all these years i've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders might be worth imagining what the neighbors have to say about this older son he's a model son he is he's not like that other one who's brought shame in the family Here is a good son who loves his father, and yet we see in this verse, whenever it comes down to the heart, things are not right. These two boys are actually the same, or at least they're more similar than they maybe care to admit. They're both in it for what they can get, and there's only one difference, and that is the older son thinks he can get what he wants by choosing the path of obedience you know, sometimes wonder if we could stretch this story a little bit. And could we ask this older son, did he look like his dad? Did he have, you know, some of the same mannerisms that his father had? Did he have the same sort of sense of humour? Did he laugh at the same jokes? Did he have the same sort of accent? And yet, in his heart, He's far away from the Father, isn't he? He's very self-centered. And it's chilling to think sometimes that can be us, can't it? Aren't there times when we come to church and we're wearing a mask and we're acting like everything's fine and our hearts just aren't in it? Aren't there times when other people might look at us and they could say, here is this model son or this model daughter, and we know inside us things are different. The character of sin is a broken relationship. Sometimes it's obvious, like the younger son. Sometimes it's more subtle, like the older son. Or the member of a church who's at every single event, or the person who looks all right on the outside. We're going to be taking part in this family meal this Sabbath. Before we take part, I think it would be good for us to ask Do I have a loving relationship with my Heavenly Father? Are we close? Do I delight in him? Or have I started the drift? The character of sin. And then the third and final thing we see tonight is the cause of sin. The cause of sin. Two very different brothers. They're on two very different roads. And yet I think it's fair to say there are problems have the same root, and as we get ready for Lord's Supper and Sabbath, be good for us to look at ourselves and to examine whether or not we have the same root. To put it simply, these two men loved the Father's things more than they loved the Father himself. I wonder is that a subtle danger for us? Think of the good things, and, and they are good things, that God gives to his children. The Bible, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life. Think of the blessings that we have in the church, friendship, fellowship, support, all good things. And yet, if we take these things and we elevate them so that they're actually taking God's position, well, then we're going to hit problems. what happens with these men. Isn't it possible for those of us who genuinely love God and are genuinely sons and are genuinely saved to fall into the same trap? We begin to focus more on the gifts than we focus on the giver. We begin to fix our eyes on blessings and we take our eyes away from God himself. Look at what it did to these men. The younger brother drove himself to destruction. The older brother churned up inside because the thing that he most valued started to be threatened. If our ultimate desires are wrong, if the thing that we value most is wrong, then that's a danger we're going to face as well. I mean, we could illustrate it with just a variety of different examples, but if our focus is on material things, for example, well, then we're not going to be able to give generously. We're not going to experience the blessing of giving to others. If our focus is on success and being the very best we can, we're not going to be able to rejoice whenever other people do well. If you have a minister... And the one thing that is most important to him is being able to preach the gospel. Well then, how is he going to react whenever God decides to take away his health? If the thing that we want most is to have a thriving church in Letterkenny, where we see lots of people being saved, which is obviously a great thing, how are we going to respond whenever God sends discouragement? If we delight in our Christian friends more than we delight in God himself. Well, how are we going to respond when something happens to interrupt those friendships? All of these are good things. But if they mean more to us than God himself, well then we're setting ourselves up for disaster. Because as we're going to be seeing on Sabbath, God's love endures. This father puts up with so much. None of these things are going to endure in the way that our relationship with God will. The real tragedy of this passage. These boys had something that was far, far better. A material blessing. Isn't that a picture for us? Of our wonderful relationship with our heavenly father better than any of the blessings or anything the world has to offer? Maybe a couple of good questions, challenging questions, might be worth asking just as we get ready for Sabbath. First one is, if I lost everything but still had God, could I be happy? It's quite a blunt question but it's worth pressing into the details of our lives. For the second question, is the opposite. If I could keep all of God's blessings, yet lose my relationship with them, would I be crushed? I think by, by considering these questions, we'll get a good indicator of where our heart's desires truly lie. It may well be that as we come to the Lord's Supper, this coming Sabbath our focus is wrong and we don't delight in our relationship with God in the way that we ought to and if that's the case then we ought to be making it a matter of prayer in the coming days that God would correct that focus and that God would give us rich rich delight as we think about him and the relationship that we enjoy with him and on Sabbath as we sit at the table. And as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we're taking part in this family meal. And it's a reminder we have this loving Father and all of the blessings that he gives us. They're simply tokens of what he is like and of the greatest thing that he gives us, which is himself and his son Jesus. So let us seriously examine ourselves in the coming days. And let us pray that God would correct our focus. Well,